come to kindergarten class. The Developmentally Appropriate Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to Kindergarten Kiosk. I'm Lindsay. And I'm E. And I'm T. And I'm G. <laughs> <laughs> and today we're going to talk about math. I'm going to give you guys a problem and we're going to try to figure it out, okay? Okay, here's the solving on this paper. Okay, here's the solving on the paper. Let's see if we get past this problem. All right, you ready to hear the problem? Okay, what's this problem? What's the problem? Okay, this is the problem. Okay, some children have a great big bunk bed. And there are six children. And some of the kids want to sleep on the top bunk. Check. And some of the kids want to sleep on the bottom bunk. Check. So I want you to show me on the paper how you're going to have the kids sleep on their bunk bed. Okay? So tell everybody what you're doing on your paper. So I write, I'm, first I have to write my bunk bed. The bunk bed. You're going to draw a picture of the bunk bed? Okay, there's, I see a top bed and I see a bottom bed. Okay. Okay, so if we only have six kids, how many, and you want to put some in this bed and some in this bed, how many kids did you put on this bed? Three. Let me draw some. Okay, so there's three, three. on the bottom and how many on the top? Three. Three on the top. Does that make six? Yes. Okay, so I'm going to write three plus three equals six. Okay, now here's another bed bed. I'm going to draw this time. Is there a different way to make six kids sleep on the bunk bed? This one has three. On you the have to make a triple bed. A triple bed? Okay, here's a triple That's bed. That's way. Okay, we only have six kids. Where are they going to sleep? How many are going to sleep on the top, and how are going to sleep on the middle, and how many are on the bottom? Bottom could, the bottom could have one, two, four. You put four, four on the bottom? One, two, three, four kids. Okay. How many are left for those two? Mm. There's only six kids, remember? Four. Okay. One, two, three, four. And then you want to put four the, on the, the middle? Rest ha- the rest have four. The top has four, too. The top has four kids, too? Two, three, four. And the middle has four, too? Mm-hmm. One, two. Okay, how many kids is that? One, two, three, six. four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Twelve. That's more kids than we have. That won't work. Let's cross that out. Let's try again. You want to do a triple bed or a bunk bed? Bunk bed. Just a regular bunk bed? Okay. Let's think of another way to put the kids. Don't touch that. Okay. So you did three and three because three plus three is six. So What's I another way? Three right, so I put two, right away that's different two than right that one. there. Two on the top? Okay. How many are on the bottom then? Four. Hey guys, what Four? you doing? <laughs> one two three what are you doing four we're doing a math problem you want to solve it uh-uh. okay does that make six yes one two three I four five six so what do we write Mommy, you <sighs> two, two plus four equals equals Equals, okay. equals five. Equal. Two plus four equals what? How many kids? Six. Okay, so now we know three plus three is six, and two plus four is six. Can you think of another way? This one's three and three, 
This one's two hmm. and four. Fourteen. What's another way to make six? One plus five. All right, so how many kids on the top? Three plus three. One. 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 He did that way. Okay, one. Two. How many on the bottom? Five. Okay, so what does this say? One, one plus, plus five, five equals, equals six. six. Today we have an interview with Dr. Sean Nick. He's going to talk to us about balancing math. Dr. Nick is a faculty member at American College of Education. My name is John Mink. I've been teaching in the K-12 classroom for 21 years now, and I'm also a full professor at American College of Education and adjunct professor at California State University, San Marcos. And I also work extensively with uh, Learn Zillion, where we just, about a year ago, we uh, published the world's first cloud-based open source K-8 Common Core Line textbook. And I do other work with uh, the U.S. Department of Education, National Science Foundation, California Commission on Teacher Credentialing, and Smarter Balanced Assessment Consortium, and consult as well for different districts. You are an exciting person to talk to. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. You, you are an advocate for balancing the way we teach math. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. It, what I like to tell people is that, and I'm included in this group, as are most people who are teaching math right now, uh, we've been classically trained in mathematics. <laughs> and what I mean by that is we're pre-Common uh, Core. Mm -hmm. uh, I grew up in an era where I had wonderful math teachers. I Just last week, I was talking to one of my math teachers from high school. His name's Larry Kamen, and he's one of the best teachers I've ever met. Uh, but when I was in high school, when I was in college, we never asked the hows and the whys. It was always a matter of, can you solve the problem? Can you use the algorithm? Mm -hmm. um, and there's actually been some research to show that uh, earlier on, when we were classically trained in mathematics, that you would actually start to do worse, especially in high school and college, if you stopped to wonder why and wonder how things work as opposed to just doing the problem. Um, so right now, since a lot of people, myself included, had only seen the algorithmic part of mathematics, the procedural part of mathematics, right now our challenge is getting that balance between conceptual, procedural, and application. And it's kind of nice because the conversations I'm having now, a, a decade ago, I was always saying we need to start teaching conceptual aspects before we teach students the procedures. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people weren't really too fond of that about a decade ago. But now with Common Core, I can see that more people are starting to see the value in conceptually attacking a problem first. And then, of course, formalizing it later. But it's creating a balance because if you do any one of the three too much, then it's not going to be... Um, what the students need to know in order to be successful in mathematics. Can you talk a little bit about what conceptual and procedural and application are, what you mean by those three things? Sure. So the application, you can take one of two ways. 
when we talk about application, there's a real-life application in parentheses <laughs> for <laughs> school math. And there's the what I refer to as the really real-life application of mathematics. Mm -hmm. um, so what you see in math with the, the problems, the word problems that people do, the mathematical modeling we do in classrooms, that's good. And that is constrained a little bit more than the actual real-world mathematics. But what I love is uh, when somebody comes into my room at lunchtime and says, I just turned 16, I got my driver's license, I'm getting a car. That's the real world application <laughs> of mathematics where we just did systems of equations and we looked at exponential growth and decay. And you really need to know this stuff to understand that mathematically, the best type of car to buy is a car that's two to four years old, if you think of it from a mathematical perspective. Mm -hmm. So it's conversations like that that I really love bringing into the classroom. Mm -hmm. The procedural is what we tend to traditionally think of in terms of mathematics, which is, do you have the tools to be able to solve the problem? If I give you an equation, can you solve the equation? If I give you an equation, can you grasp the equation? Um, those, the thing that I'm noticing that some people might go wrong is if they fully embrace common core, then some people might tend to lean towards the conceptual and forget about the procedural. So the procedural is just as important. They need to be able to solve problems. And then for the conceptual, the, the best way that I can sum it up is anytime you're asking how, and especially anytime you're asking why something works. So the, the example that I was talking about is somebody wants to buy a car. In application, I'm talking about exponential decay in value of the car. And then procedurally, I'm talking about can you take how much the car is worth and can you make a graph so that you can interpret whether or not on that exponential decay, you're at the point in time where it's going to start depreciating less, at, at less of a slope value. Um, and then in terms of conceptual, it's a matter of what do we mean by this everything that I just said, exponential decay, how is that different from uh, a parabolic curve? How is that different from a cubic? How is that different from a linear decay? What exactly makes it an exponential decay and what's going on there? Why do cars decrease exponentially and why can we portray it that way mathematically? Mm -hmm. What do you think the best way is to make sure that we're getting all three in our classrooms to make sure that we're teaching the conceptual and the procedural and the application and that we're not leaning too heavily one way or another? It's funny you should ask that because I was asking myself that same question <laughs> when Common Core first came out. <laughs> I remember being in 2013 in a room with some of the best educators in the nation and we were looking at some of the common core for k-8 common core math they they nailed it it's it's really foundationally a good set of standards for the high school level there were some standards that we we looked at each other and it took a little bit of while to work through the standard and understand exactly what they meant by it and then after we understood that that was the conversation we were we were having and it took a a year or two to, to work it all out, but my answer to that is to find, and I'm totally biased when I say use something like the Learn Zillion textbook that we created, mm -hmm. but what we did with that is we, for every single 
topic. We chose three main topics within a unit of study, and we developed the conceptual and then a procedural and then an application lesson. Mm -hmm. So my, and, and I know teachers sometimes have a great deal of control over this, and sometimes they have no control over what textbook that they have to use in the classroom. Right. But if you have a textbook that has all three, then that's a golden opportunity. What I'm starting to find though with Common Core is usually the textbooks are going to lean too far into the procedural mm -hmm. or too far into the conceptual. And it's equally bad if you do one or the other. So what I would say is take a look at the resources that you have that the district says you need to use. Determine which one of the three they're emphasizing more and then try to bring some free, hopefully open source resources mm -hmm. so that you can balance out the curriculum yourself. And having said that, I know that teachers are uh, entirely overworked. There aren't enough hours in the day to do what they need to do. So that's asking for them to do more. So when they get uh, support at the district level, at the school site level, they have the time to really dive into their curriculum and ask which of the three they're emphasizing more so that they can get that balance. That time is extremely valuable. Yeah. I'm really grateful because I, whenever my district gets a new math curriculum, we always have professional development where we really, really look critically at our curriculum and find ways to make it better. And, and so that's been really useful for me whenever I get a new curriculum, especially when you can do it on a professional development level with peers it makes it easier. Yeah. Do you, I think one of the hardest things for me, well, it actually, it's not been a hard thing for me because I went through school at a very much procedural level of mathematics. And I even remember mm -hmm. asking my teacher, well, why do we do it this way? And her answer was, well, you'll understand when you get to higher level. And I said, I, don't, <laughs> I want to know now why I'm doing it this way. And I, so I, I think it's been exciting for me as a teacher to learn the conceptual piece that I was missing. But I, I think sometimes it's also difficult for me as a teacher and for parents of the kids that I'm teaching because that's not the way that we learned math. Uh, do you have any advice for any of us who are coming at math from from that experience? Absolutely. Um, <laughs> I know I'm dating myself, but I remember buying books after I I graduated from college and after I got my first uh, teaching job. Um, I remember myself being on the other end of it, on the teaching end of it. I found myself asking. The, the conceptual, the hows and the whys so much more because I wanted to know, because I wanted to give the students that aspect that I always wondered about, but never asked about, was never given myself. So I remember going and, and checking out books and articles and research in, uh, you know, mathematically based magazines and really trying to teach myself the hows and the whys. Um, but now it's, we have a wonderful thing called the internet. <laughs> you have to vet your sources, but um, it, it, the thing is, to this day, I, nobody can know everything about mathematics. That's just far too beautifully, richly complex to know everything about it. So whenever I find that I don't know the hows and the whys, one of my first resources is going online. And I usually try to go to the more, the more vetted sites mm -hmm. and especially for parents, because one of the things I tell my parents at every back to school night that I have, and 
And one of the things that I tell my uh, uh, my credential students and the students getting master's degrees with emphases in math education is I try to tell them that the student's anxiety about mathematics more often than not uh, funnels through their parents. And what I'll get is a matter of, I didn't understand this stuff. I barely got through middle school. I took a geometry class and I hated it. Mm -hmm. uh, so you get all of that, the negativity with math. And there's something that I remember Steve Leinwand when he was a keynote speaker at uh, California Mathematics Council North. He actually said um, that one of the things that the other countries that outperform us do is every night, there's somebody in the family, uh, an aunt, an uncle, an older brother, a mother, a father, who just sits down with the child for 15 to 30 minutes a day and while they're doing their homework. And it's not a matter of needing to know how to teach them how to do their homework. It's just that message that you send of you're important to me and your education is important enough for me for me to take time out of my day to sit here with you and be there for you. And so what I tell the teacher, the uh parents to do is it's okay if you don't know any of the math what's wonderful now is if your student has a question on something okay so you're dividing fractions give me a minute go online pull up one of the videos and look at it to see that it's addressing dividing fractions and sit down and watch the video together and it's something as simple as that to where you don't need to be the expert to help your kid but you just tremendously helped your kid by using online resources to answer the questions that they might not be equipped to answer. And I'll be the first person to admit that I've done that with other subjects with my daughter already that I don't teach and that I'm not trained to teach. I remember just two or three weeks ago, we were doing a science project and I took my own advice. She had a question that I did not remember from high school <laughs> science. And that's the first thing that I did was I looked at, I looked up videos while she was working on her project. And I said, Ooh, let's watch this together. And we both, learn something together about the science that she had to do. Do you think, I, I, I had a thought and I'm curious if you think this is accurate, but I feel like when it comes to other subjects like science or history that we feel totally comfortable if we don't know the answer and going and asking somebody else and figuring it out. But when it comes to math, for some reason, as adults, we feel like if we don't know the answer immediately, we're stupid. <laughs> you know? that. Yeah. That, that's there's there's something there's something wrong with us if we don't know it right away and that's not how any discipline works but for some reason we've got it in our heads that if you don't know it right away you don't know math you're not a math person right and that's one of the reasons why I, we're starting to get students to uh try to endorse the aspect of uh i don't know if you've heard about the fixed versus growth mindset research um, Carol Dweck wrote the quintessential book on it, and uh, Joe Bowler is doing a lot of work in the math community on it. Mm -hmm. um, but when you said that, I, I, I'm thinking about that, the aspect of some people, it's kind of a contradictory because in one breath they'll say, oh, I hated math. But then in the next breath, you're right, that people don't want to admit that they uh, don't know math as well as they should have or as well as they think they should. Mm -hmm. um, but to that, I'd say for, for parents, for students, and especially for teachers, because our students are going to model our mindset. We all need to embrace that fixed versus growth mindset. 
when I'm consulting and I work with teachers, one of the hardest things to get them to do is admit when they made a mistake in class. Because we are, and I, I, I'm the same way. When I make a mistake in class, I have that instant knee-jerk reaction to try to erase it and hide my mistake. But I learned over the years that those are golden opportunities, not only to show them where the mistake happened, conceptually what I was thinking about, or sometimes just that I was trying to do the problem too fast because it's a minute before the bell rings, <laughs> but also to model the, I made a mistake. No problem. It's not the end of the world. It's wonderful that I made this mistake. Let's all learn from the mistake that I just made. And it's, it's, it was difficult for me at first to embrace that as a teacher, because as a teacher, you're supposed to have all the right answers. You're supposed to be the expert. But I mean, being the expert doesn't mean never making a mistake, because when it comes right down to it, we're all human. And making a mistake doesn't mean that you don't know it. And it doesn't mean that you don't understand it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, you bring up Joe Bowler, and I she, I heard that I don't think she's the originator of it, but she mentioned that we've we've taught math for so long as the same way as sending a kid to a piano and saying just or no a kid to the piano, just having them re- learn to read music and never getting to play the piano. And I love that that metaphor because I feel like that's <laughs> how math was for me that I just was sent to read the music and I never got to play the piano and see how beautiful and how creative and how exciting math can be. And I I think it's really exciting to be teaching in a time when we're giving that gift to our students. Yeah. And it's in terms of the way our societies use mathematics. I I love that you use the the music example because at the very end of, uh, my first book, I talk about music and I talk about um, how learning the guitar uh, when I first picked it up about six or seven years ago was entirely mathematical to me. Mm-hmm. And in learning the guitar in a mathematical way, it helped me to see more of the beauty of mathematics that I was missing before I had known musically how mathematics is beautiful. Um, and and I like that example, too, because it's it's a matter of it, it, we can't get as excited. Like, people go up to each other all the time and they say, oh, I read this great book a few weeks ago. Or if somebody's, um, I want to say the students necessarily get overly excited about talking about Shakespeare in a classroom. <laughs> but you do that. You talk about Shakespeare and how does it make you feel and, and what do you think about this? And I get into conversations with, uh, there's a couple of people that I'm uh, intensely coaching right now, and we get into those conversations all the time. One in particular, he'll come into my room and he'll say, look at this problem. I just figured out this connection with this problem and how it relates to this other problem. Now we can solve it this different way. And if anybody else walks into the classroom, they look at us like we're crazy talking (laughs) about mathematics. Like it's such an exciting thing that we can pick apart and it matters what we think about it and how we process it. Um, if people will look at the beauty in literature, the beauty in art, um, but looking at the beauty and an equation and a formula, uh, that's a little bit harder of a sell for some people, <laughs> but it's there. Yeah. And I think it's exciting that our students are really seeing it. I I think more than I had a chance to, I think I see it in my own children and my students. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I want to ask you a question that may, <laughs> that, that I've had a hard time answering. Um, I, I've seen a lot of examples of a mathematical uh, problem for students but there, that, that contains conceptual and procedural and application skills. Um, but mm -hmm. I, I haven't seen a lot of examples at the very, very basic kindergarten, preschool, first grade level. Do you do you have an example? Am I <laughs> catching you too off guard to think of one? An example that incorporates all aspects of it? Uh, for, for at the very, very basic, basic number sense level. Oh, absolutely. One of the things that, and I was, I, I have to admit, sometimes when I discover things in mathematics later on in life, I think to myself, man, I really wish that I had learned this. Uh, things all the way back in kindergarten. Mm -hmm. um, do you know how people in kindergarten, they start counting, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, mm -hmm. and they'll use touch points to understand the value of the number four or five or seven? Mm -hmm. um, that this is the earliest in K through 12 education that I can think of an example off the top of my head is when they use those touch points, there's a procedural and conceptual and an application aspect to that. Mm -hmm. Usually what happens is we miss the origin of it. So one of the things I like is when people backtrack the reason why things first happen in mathematics, like Pythagoras didn't invent the Pythagorean theorem because he had nothing better to do on a Saturday <laughs> afternoon. It was to solve a problem, and it was to take something conceptually and let everybody else partake in, in their thoughts of it. So even something as early on as numbers is going into the reasons why we write numbers the way we write it. Mm -hmm. So ask yourself, ask a kindergarten class, why does the number two literally look the way it does? Why do we write the number two the way we do? And why do we write the number three the way we do. And the reason why is because of the angles that were within the original numbers were touch points. So the number three was kind of like if you picture an uppercase M and turn it on its side, that was the original number three because the three vertices for the angles let people know if they didn't understand conceptually what three was, they could draw that symbol and they could count those and realize that three was three apples or three, whatever it is that they were trying to count. So there's a conceptual reason for why we write the number four, the way we write the number four today. You just blew my mind. And then you have this. <laughs> <laughs> now, of course, you have the procedural aspect of counting the four and the application of counting the four. And then everything builds off of that. Like we have four apples and we take one away and it, but it all boils down to conceptually why the number three is written the way it is. And that's something that, I don't know, I don't know if as a kindergartner, I would have thought that was really cool. But right now, I think that I would have thought it was cool <laughs> to know that. You just totally changed the way I'm going to teach uh, writing numbers because I've always taught it as a handwriting lesson and thought, how do I connect this? But holy cow, now I know. <laughs> <laughs> that's exciting. Thank you for that. Yeah. Oh, no problem. Can you talk about, let's say you are a faculty member at the American College of Education, right? Yes. 
Can you talk a little bit about the Masters of Education program in STEM that you are offering? Absolutely. We have uh, different programs uh, at the master's degree level. And one of them that, of course, I'm particular to is the emphasis in mathematics education, but we have emphases in, in different areas of STEM. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that I'm most excited about the program at American College of Education is when we designed uh, the math education courses last summer, uh, a few of us got together to design them. And there were things that traditionally people would have probably um, rejected that they were unequivocally open to. Like, for example, we, we wanted to have a history of mathematics class. And the first thing I thought was, I will not take a teacher getting a master's degree and have them do what I did for my history of mathematics course, because it was just not to insult anybody, but it was looking up old dead white people, reading their biographies and uh, figuring out what they discovered. Um, I wanted something more rich and more engaging and something that would honestly address everything that we've been talking about in our conversation right now. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that we did with that course, instead of saying, pick a person in mathematics, research them, write a paper on them, talk about what they discovered. Instead, what we did was said something like, choose a topic, like, like the Pythagorean theorem. Mm -hmm. Backtrack the Pythagorean theorem to its origin. So when the students do that, they'll hopefully discover that, well, it's debatable, but most people say that Pythagoras invented the, or discovered the Pythagorean theorem. And not stopping there, getting the, uh, I'm a firm component or a proponent for uh, having teachers, treating teachers how you want them to treat their students. So what I wanted to do in this class is have the teachers go through the same type of questioning and discovery that we would want them to have their students do in their K through 12 classroom. So instead of stopping with Pythagoras, going and asking, okay, why did Pythagoras come up with the Pythagorean theorem? What problem were they trying to solve with the right triangles? And what did A squared plus B squared plus equals C squared do for all of the people, not just Pythagoras and the mathematicians at that time? And then taking that and coming back into the present moment and asking, okay, now how in application are we using it? And how does that relate to the original reason why Pythagoras came up with the Pythagorean theorem in the first place? So to me, it gives them that connection of mathematics wasn't made just for the sake of mathematics. It was made as a way of viewing the world, viewing people, viewing nature, and solving problems that we didn't have solutions for. So it's partially in going back and understanding why they did it in the first place that helps us conceptually, procedurally, and in application understand how we make sense of the problem today. Mm -hmm. uh, and I just find that so much more rich than your assigned Pythagoras. Mm -hmm. Go write a paper on him and tell me what he made for mathematics and what he was about. Yeah. So. Well, it really makes it explicit, the journey that mathematicians take. I have a random side note that I thought of while you were saying that. My uh, <laughs> husband and I were watching Contact the other night. Do you remember that movie? Oh. Contact? Yeah, I do. <laughs> we were watching it, and they built the big spaceship from the aliens' instructions. And the news reporter says, 
well, we don't know how this works, but we're going to drop the seat. And we paused the movie and I said, can you imagine, what do they mean they don't know how that works? Can you imagine all of the things we would learn if we got instructions from an alien and we actually built their spacecraft? Can you imagine all the we <laughs> could learn from just putting that machine together? You wouldn't even have to go. It would just change us just building the thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny you should say that because I just watched um, Independence Day Resurrection. Uh-huh. Um, I don't know if you've seen that, but it's... No. Uh, if you haven't, I won't give away too much of it, but part of it at the very beginning was they did just that. All the alien technology, they picked it apart and learned from it <laughs> instead of saying, we don't know how this works. <laughs> they, they took it and they figured it all out. Right. Well, thank you for talking to me tonight. Do you have anything else you'd like to bring up? Um, I think the only other thing I'd say is the best thing that we could do, this goes for mathematics, but this goes for any subject matter at any level, K through 12, university, advanced degrees. Um, it, it's something that, and whenever I say this, people have to take a second or two to digest it, but there's something that I refer to as my Marilyn Manson form of pedagogy. <laughs> um, as in, yeah, the, uh, that Marilyn Manson. Um, I remember early on in my career, uh, when Columbine happened, they uh, did a documentary, Bowling for Columbine, and the person musically that they were blaming for all the hatred and the rage in our society was Marilyn Manson. So they brought him to Columbine, and the person who was shooting the documentary was interviewing him, and he looked at Marilyn Manson and said, you're in Columbine right now. You're surrounded by all these students who are going through this tragedy. If you had anything to say to them, what would you say? And without missing a beat, Marilyn Manson said, I wouldn't say anything. I would just shut up and listen. And that always has stuck with me as an educator. And I, to this day, ask myself at every level, how often am I, I don't say the word shut up too much, but how often am I shutting up and listening? And I think that's one of the keys for for any way that you try to teach, any way that you try to develop the balance is pedagogically, are we building in the time and the space to listen to our students? Because I can't tell you how many two-minute conversations, one-minute conversations I've had with students who were failing my class as they were leaving the class, who after that conversation, I knew them so much better and I was able to relate to them on a personal level, but also on a subject matter level. And I was able to bring in applications that they actually care about whenever I could. And that captures so many more students than anything else that I've done. So I guess that would be the only other thing. Yeah, thank you. That's a, that's a good point to end on. Well, thank you, Dr. Nink. I appreciate the conversation. Oh, no problem. You can write us at kindergartenkiosk at gmail.com or you can visit us at kindergartenkiosk.com. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone. I, I hope you ha <laughs> have a good day in today. Kindergarten Kiosk is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. 
a network of podcasts for educators by educators. For more information, visit edupodcastnetwork.com. That's E-D-U podcastnetwork.com. Now can I listen to it?